What is the church really? This week we're going to look into an incredibly important passage that answers that question. And it's been a text that I've, I've actually overlooked it for about 40 years. When I think about what is the church, I think about Acts chapter 2. But I'm going to argue that it's the Antioch church that ought to be the model for us today. And this morning we're going to learn why. Now, I want to challenge you with a question. How important is the church to you, to me, to Jesus, to Satan? Let me give you a, uh, a quote from, uh, from Uncle Screwtape, C.S. Lewis's Screwtape Letters, where he, uh, he's a senior devil. His job is to mentor a junior devil to tempt and to trap us. And here's what he says to um, his mentee. He says, one of our greatest allies at present is the church itself. Do not misunderstand me. I do not mean the church as we see her spread out through all time and space and rooted in eternity, terrible as an army with banners. That, I confess, is a spectacle which makes our boldest tempters uneasy. But fortunately, it is quite invisible to these humans. And tragically, Uncle Screwtape's assessment uh, is probably more true now than ever before. Every year, 2.7 million church members walk away from church. And in the polls, about 40 to 50 People, they say regularly, regularly attend church, but when they really get that information and put it all together, even though 75% of Americans claim to be Christians, only 22% attend church even twice a month. And the stats about younger generations are even more alarming. 59% of millennials who were raised in the church have walked away. They've dropped out. 35% of millennials, when interviewed, take an anti-church stance, which means that they say that the church does more harm than good. I don't know about you, but that, that breaks my heart. And uh, so we can see that obviously the church per se is on the wane. But as we look at that, what can we do? I'm one person, you're one person. But I, but I think we're going to see that there is a call on each of us individually to value the church and to be a vibrant part of it. And I think our passage this week is going to help us to know uh, where to put our loyalties and the emphases. So before we dig into the passage, though, I want to do a little bit of preliminary work. I want us to define what we mean when we use the term church. And I love the definition, R.C. Sproul, Bill Hybels, um, Rick Warren, several leaders came together and collaborated on what they said was a definition of the church, and I love it. Let me, let me read it to you. They say, when a person gives their life to Christ, a new relationship is born as that person is enfolded spiritually into the family of God. 
Jesus describes the bond using a picture of a bride coming into relationship with her husband. That's how intimate Jesus wants our relationship with the church to be. Because the church is a manifestation of Jesus on the earth. The believers enter that believer then enters into a new kind of love and shared intimacy they never knew before. The church is not an organization, but rather a living relationship between the risen and ascended Christ and those who have turned their hearts over to him. It's a new birth into a new family. They are engrafted into a relationship not only with God, but also with other believers as brothers and sisters in Christ. Now, individually, we are all called to be part of a local church body, and that's church with a lowercase c. But in addition, corporately, we are part of the universal church body, and that's church with a capital C. It's to be a family where we experience a place of acceptance and love and growth and meaningful service, community that prepares us then to move out and woo the world. Paul uses another picture besides the bride of Christ that Jesus used. He calls the church the body, the body of Jesus Christ. And the church is the primary instrument that God uses to, to bless and to impact the world. And so what this is telling us is that we are actually the bride of Christ as the church and we are the body of Christ as the church. Now, of course, this is ideal, isn't it? I mean, we all live in a fallen world. We know that there is no perfect church, but it's a beautiful picture to emulate the bride with her Jesus, head and body in harmony. Jesus the head, we are the body. Now, Acts 11, 19 through 30 is going to add definition to these beautiful images. And that's what we're going to talk about this morning. So if you have your Bibles, if you would turn to uh, or scroll to Acts 11, 19 through 30 to see what we can learn about, uh, about the church. Now, as, as you turn there, I want to make three disclaimers. The first one is that I know that everyone here does not attend IBC. This is not a message about the IBC church. So you, you're welcome. We're glad you're here. We're all part of the universal church. Just apply what I'm saying to and what you're learning to your own church body. The second disclaimer is that as, whenever we compare our church with a perfect model, it's very easy to take on a critical spirit or a consumer attitude. And I want to warn you against that. Uh, what is it they say? Don't ask what your church can do for you. Ask what you can do for your church. And that's the spirit in which we want to uh, come to this text. How can but, but every church is full of flaws, but how can we make our church more like the Antioch church? 
And the third disclaimer is this. I've entitled this message, Make Yours an Antioch Church. And I could easily be misunderstand. It sounds kind of like a consumer mentality that you're going to do this. And I don't want to do that. I want you to shift your mind from a consumer mentality to a contributor mentality. And besides that, we're never going to do this in our own strength. Uh, This is a Holy Spirit-driven endeavor where you and I are led, directed, guided, empowered to live out being the church. And it's nothing we can do on our own, and there are whole messages on that often, and I just want that to be understood as we go into the text. All right, with those three disclaimers, I want to move into this beautiful text And I want to present to you four challenges. And the first challenge is this. Make yours a diverse church. Let's look at 11, 11, 19 through 21. Now, those who had been scattered by the persecution that broke out when Stephen was killed, remember that, don't we? They traveled as far as Phoenicia, Cyprus and Antioch, spreading the word only among the Jews. Some of them, however, men from Cyprus and Cyrene, went to Antioch and began to speak to Greeks also, telling them the good news about the Lord Jesus. And the Lord's hand was with them, and a great number of people believed and turned to the church. And it's an assumption here that those who come to Christ will, will be grafted into that community. It's, it's not an option. But who were the leaders of this Antioch church? Well, uh, skip over, if you would, to chapter 13, verse 1. And we're gonna, we can find out there who the leaders of Antioch, the Antioch church, were says, now in the church of Antioch, at Antioch, there were prophets and teachers. And then we have this list of five different leaders. And we start out with Barnabas. Um, Barnabas was a Jew from the island of Cyprus. And you can look on the map. You can see where these locations are. He was from Cyprus. He was already involved in the Jerusalem church. But he goes to the Antioch church, and probably to the disdain of the Jerusalem church, he decides to stay there. And we're going to see why in a moment. The second name listed is Simeon the Niger. Now, Niger means the black, and this is probably a Gentile, certainly a dark-skinned person, and some hypothesize that this might be Simon of Cyrene, who that's, Cyrene's a city in North Africa, that was who carried the cross of Christ, but we have no proof. But what we do see is the beginning of a diverse leadership. The third person listed is Lucius of Cyrene. Now, Lucius is a Roman name. The short name is actually Luke. And it's a common name. And he's probably another Gentile. And he also is from North Africa. So we don't know exactly, but could he be dark-skinned also? It sounds likely. Then we have Mannion. He, is, uh, he grew up with Herod the Tetrarch. That's Herod who beheaded John the Baptist. 
And uh, he grew up in a royal household. He was very possibly an aristocrat. He, he grew up in, in, uh, in Palestine, but he is now gone to Antioch to, to live there, and he's given up all of that to become a Christian. And then we have the man we know a lot about, Paul. He's a Jew, but he's also a Roman citizen. And the fact that he's a Roman citizen tells us that he very likely has a greater understanding. He's from Tarsus, which is, um, you can see on the map up there where, where, he, uh, where he, his hometown. Excuse me, he's, um, am I right? Yes, okay, yes. <laughs> All right, thank you. He's from Tarsus. He's, he was educated in the top rabbinical school by the most elite, the most brilliant professor that there was in Judaism, uh, Gamaliel. So he comes from that background. So as we look at these leaders from the first church after the mother church in Jerusalem, we see that they are different ethnicities. They come from different socioeconomic backgrounds, from different religious heritages, and from different educations. And they've distinguished themselves, and they are now leading this baby church. And we could draw some assumptions from this, that I would make the argument that if the leadership is diverse, then the people in the church are likely diverse as well. And if the people in the church are diverse, it's very likely that when you walk into the church at Antioch, you are welcomed. This is a welcoming church despite the color of your skin, despite your educational background, despite your economic status, age, gender, whatever. And that's a beautiful thing. This is a welcoming church. And in Antioch, we discover the powerful, unifying influence of the gospel. All right, so what else do we see? How did this church get that way? Well, my second challenge to you and to me is to make yours a grace-filled church. Verses 22 through 24. News of this reached the church in Jerusalem, what was going on in Antioch. And they sent Barnabas to Antioch. And when he arrived and saw what the grace of God had done, he was glad. And there's a rejoicing. He was overjoyed and encouraged. And he encouraged them all to remain true to the Lord with all their hearts. He was a good man full of the Holy Spirit and faith. And a great number of people were brought to the Lord again. So here we see the mother church sharing one of their best leaders with the Antioch church, and uh, he decides to stay. Think about the great choice it was to send Barnabas. What if they had sent someone else? But they sent a man who was a tremendous, it, it was known, his nickname was the Father of Encouragement. And, and we know that the Jerusalem church is still wrestling with this whole issue of do we, do we include these people who are not like us? Our lesson last week, we've been studying how God was very clear and, and very overt about, hey, yes, here you go. I'm making it clear. 
They've sent Barnabas probably to check up on the Antioch church. But when he arrives, he's in awe of the beauty and the harmony of this community of diverse believers. Because chances are he has never seen this before. And you see, this is only possible because a thriving church understands and lives out grace. Grace is simply God's unmerited favor to, um, to love us, to, to give us mercy. We, none of us deserve it. What does it look like? It looks like respect and kindness to every person who's made in the image of God, and that's every person ever born, whether they look like us or not. This is a significant example of what Jesus talked about in Matthew 9, 17, when he talked about new wineskins, that he, his church would bring new wineskins. And think about it. It's in that culture particularly, it's, it's awe-inspiring. It's almost shocking. It's provocative. And it brings incredible glory to God. Well, what is the message for us? As I walked into church this last Sunday and I, as I've been working on this message, it just... I was kind of overwhelmed. You know, I'm an introvert. You know, it's just really easy for me to sit back and not take initiative or not reach out. But I was, again, very intentionally convicted that it is my place as a part of the church to reach out to those who are coming in the doors, not as a greeter formally, but just as a person who is a part of the church. Do I reach out to all people? Do I look them in the eye? Do I, do I take the initiative to know them and love them, even if they're different from me? Because it's this unity in diversity that, that we know gives God tremendous glory. What gives him more glory, a spiritual family that's splintered or a spiritual family that is united in harmony? I love John Tyson's uh, quote in Sacred Roots, Why the Church Still Matters. He says, The early church leaders didn't have the things we now consider essential for our faith. No official church buildings, no social media, radio broadcasts, or celebrity pastors. They didn't even have the completed New Testament. Christ's followers were often deeply misunderstood, persecuted, and some gave their lives for their faith. And that's what we've seen this fall. Yet, they loved, and they served, and they prayed, and they blessed. And slowly, over hundreds of years, they brought the Roman Empire to its knees. And they did it through love and through grace. Well, what else? What else do we see in this Antioch church? And my third challenge is to make yours an equipping church. And we see this in 25 and 26. Then Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for, and the word look for there is to hunt or search down. Like it wasn't easy to find him. He went to look for Saul, and when he found him, he brought him to Antioch. So for a whole year, Barnabas and Saul met with the church and taught great numbers of people. 
And the disciples were called Christians first at Antioch. Now, Barnabas seems to be the lead leader, right? I mean, his name is, is, a to, is top in, in the list. And he is an incredible encourager. He is a relational magnet. He is this master connector of people, but he's also a humble man. And he realizes that if this church is going to continue to thrive, they need help that he cannot provide. Relationships are important, but they alone are not enough. They need truth. They need a passionate teacher, someone with a sharp, razor-sharp intellect, somebody who understands the different people in the Gentile world as those ripples begin to go out, someone who has that gift and passion to teach the Word of God. Now, he hasn't seen Saul for 10 years, but obviously the Spirit brings Saul to mind enough so that he makes that trip you saw on the map from Antioch all the way to Tarsus. There's no jet planes, by the way, but he makes the trip there to find him. Now, Saul had spent 10 years in his hometown of Antioch. Chances are he was uh, relearning the Old Testament in light of his new faith. And, 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 and Barnabas talks him in to come on back to, to Antioch because he knows this is who we need. And he recruits, he recruits Saul who becomes Paul. And, and, but notice that they spend an entire year there equipping the people. And I imagine that, see, they're going to leave in a year. Uh, Saul, it, Paul is a church planter. And when you know anything about Paul, I don't imagine this was very easy for him as a church planter to stick around for a year. He's a man that wants to get going. But he understands the absolute importance of, of preparing and digging into the scriptures um, in ways that will strengthen and uplift. Uh, he, he, he knows that in order for them to continue to thrive, um, he's, they've got to equip them well. well. Well, how would we apply this part of the text? Well, pre, uh, certainly appreciate those um, and invest in those who, who equip the body. There are tons of you out there. Uh, if, and if you believe that God has gifted you with, sir, with leading, teaching, uh, whatever the body needs, get after it. Get out there and get equipped and step out. And if you're a leader, I want to challenge you to provide opportunities, provide places for others to contribute because that's the way they grow. And that's the way all of us become equipped then to reach out and to woo the world. Remember that truth is found in, in God's word, life-transforming riches. And I'm talking to the choir here because here you are in, in Bible study. But don't ever forget the importance and the high value. And, and it's going to be the, the scriptures that are going to bring all of us to maturity that is going to ultimately lead to this beautiful unity and harmony 
Without serious equipping through God's word, we will never thrive as a diverse community. Only truth bathed in relationship can we be the bride and the body that shows the world who God is. And we hope that what happened at Antioch can happen to our church, that they are known outside and the community actually gives them a name. The community calls this, this church Christians for the very first time. Christian can mean uh, the party of Christ or it can mean little Christ. And it's very important that the church gains this distinction because up to this time, the church was considered just another sect of Judaism. And had they remained just another sect of Judaism, they very likely would have faded over time and just disappeared. But this church was distinctive, and as a result, it gained a reputation. Well, what's another? What else can we learn from this text? And, and fourth, I'd like to challenge all of us to make yours a generous church. And we see that in 27 through 30. It says, During this time, some prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch, and one of them, named Agabus, stood up and through the Spirit predicted that a severe famine would spread over the entire Roman world. And by the way, he says this happens during the reign of Claudius. The disciples, as each one was able, decided to provide help for the brothers and sisters living in Judea. Judea is the, the, like the county or the area. That's, that's Jerusalem church. That's where Jerusalem is. Um, this they did, sending their gifts by the, uh, to the elders by Barnabas and Saul. So at this time when the church is finding its footing... God enabled prophets from time to time to actually um, tell the future if it enhanced his particular, um, his purpose. And, and that's what we seem to be seeing here. That, and this did happen in the reign of uh, the Roman Emperor Claudius from A.D. 41 to 45. There was a series of droughts that caused uh, tremendous shortages, serious food shortages, and Jerusalem was particularly hard hit. So this baby church voluntarily and as each was able sent relief to the mother church. And there's a picture here also of the responsibility of the local church, little c, to the universal church, big c, that we are one, that we come together um, that we honor our brothers and sisters wherever they might be throughout the world, that we abandon our competitiveness, our personal agendas, our attempts at status-seeking, that we're a better church than you are, that we be for one another as the universal church. You know, this unity characterized by diversity was actually Jesus' last prayer request before he went to the cross. In John 17, 20 and 21, Jesus was praying. And he says, I pray for those who will believe in me through their message. And he's talking, to the, it's a disciple's message, and that's what we see. 
that all of them, those who believe, may be one. Father, just as you are in me and I am in you, may they also be in us. And then we have the result clause, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. Luke is painting for us a beautiful portrait of the bride of Christ as he describes the Antioch church. It's a welcoming church, and as a result, it's a diverse church. It's a grace-filled church. It's an equipping church, and it's a generous church. It depicts the body of Christ on the earth, and that through us, Christ will reach out to all people with his grace and his mercy, that he will give them, all peoples, a satisfying, building up kind of community with a life of purpose and meaning as we serve and, and enable all of us to be generous to each other. And this will woo a wretched and weary world. That's the church. Now, in conclusion, I have asked uh, one of my DTS students and our IBC uh, women's intern, Grace Holick, to come and tell us a little bit about her church experience. So, Grace, come on up. As Sue stated earlier, 59% of millennials who were raised in the church have dropped out. Well, I was one of them, and there were two years in college that I wanted nothing to do with the church. Obviously, by the grace of God, I'm back, but it hasn't been an easy journey. I'm wanting to share with you guys how I was pulled away from the church, but ultimately what I believe pulled me back as it relates to what we've already been learning. So what pulled me away from the church was believing that the church was all about me. When I came to church, I wanted people to greet me. I wanted people to notice me. I wanted people to give their time and attention to me. And since that wasn't my experience in high school, I began to feel incredibly isolated, even in a room full of people. It felt like no one cared, no one noticed, no one reached out to me. So I began to pull away. I began to distance myself. And in high school, I even hid in the bathroom during youth group, which is another story for another time. But <laughs> I genuinely thought, why should I care about people who don't care about me? Why should I talk to people who don't want to talk to me? Maybe some of you in this room have felt this way before. Maybe some of you are feeling this way. And there's good news. Let me share what pulled me back to the church. First and foremost, it was a realization that the church is greater than me. And God is the one who pulled me back in. He was pursuing me the entire time. I began to see my need for Jesus Christ as my Savior and my need for my brothers and sisters in Christ, my spiritual family. I knew that if I was going to take my faith seriously, 
then I needed a place to learn, to grow, to serve, and to love. But it hasn't been necessarily an easy journey. But you know what gave me great empathy? Going to a new church. So I graduated from college, I moved away from home, and I began visiting churches by myself. And there's always this awkwardness, at least for me, of walking into a church by yourself where you don't know anyone and sitting by yourself. But I knew the Lord was changing my heart when he began to make me, help me think and worry less about how I felt walking into the church, and I began to think about how others feel walking into the church. So I was sitting there, and I'm thinking, I'm a little uncomfortable, which means someone else could be feeling uncomfortable. Someone else in this room could be coming to church for the first time. Someone else can be trying church again, hoping that this time is different. And this completely shifted my focus outward. And I began to greet others. I began to notice others. I began to give my time and attention to others. And in the meantime, I realized that others were doing the same for me. Do you see how the Antioch Church, with diversity, grace, equipping, and generosity, is so much greater than themselves? Yes, we all want to be known, valued, and loved in a church, but the primary purpose of the church is not to receive, but to give. And that takes all of us, individually and corporately, looking out for one another. In diversity, we seek relationships and friendships with those who are not like us because we always share the commonality of the gospel. We give an abundance of grace because we have received an abundance of grace. We equip others because we believe in them. We believe that God has a purpose for them. And we are generous with one another because we know we always have something to give. And that can be our time, our money, or even a listening ear. I'm only one person and you're only one person, but we need one another. I'm so incredibly thankful for how the Lord has shifted my heart towards the church and gave me a greater perspective of the church outside of myself. Thank you for listening to my story. Thank you, Grace. Well, in our study of Acts this fall, we have seen the birth of the church. We call this book the Acts. It's the Acts of the the Holy Spirit. And the primary act of the Holy Spirit, as we've seen this entire fall, is to bring about Jesus' church. And we've seen the price that was paid by many in their blood, their sweat, and their tears to make the church a reality. Would we dare take her for granted? How is God calling you to value, to invest, and to contribute to your church? Make yours an Antioch church. I've asked Grace to finish us out 
by praying. Lord Jesus, we thank you so much for this time together. Thank you for meeting us here. May we be aware of our brothers and sisters in our churches and the global church as well. May we have a heart that beats to be diverse, gracious, um, equippers, and generous. We love you, Lord. It's in your name I pray. Amen. Amen.